Uh, welcome, my name's Heath, I'm one of the pastors here. It is a joy uh, to be here. And we are launching into a new series today. We're in John still, but it's a new volume of John, and we'll be in John chapter 18. And so we want to honor the, the Lord with, with our bodies, with our minds, with our hearts. And so we stand to listen to the inspired Word of God. We believe that this is the God-breathed scriptures that we are reading today. So let us listen to what he has for us. John chapter 18, verses 1 through 12. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who had betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. Now this was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. Heavenly Father, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. You are good and true and perfect in all of your ways, and you are here. You are here with a people in deep need of your presence, a people who need to hear your voice. You are here by the power of your spirit because of the work of Jesus Christ, and so we thank you. You are a good and you are a gracious king. And your word says that in our weakness, your strength is perfected. Your grace is sufficient for us. And Father, if I'm honest today, I feel really weak given the task that is at hand the task to handle well the treasures of the scripture that we're going to be reading today. So I'm thankful that your grace is sufficient. So would you do something wonderful in us today? Would you unveil our eyes that we would see wonderful things in your word and that Jesus Christ would be lifted high? Lord, we love you. We need you. It's in the precious name of Christ we pray. Amen. You may be seated. There's a moment in the Gospels where Jesus is teaching parables, and he finishes, and he turns to his apprentices, and he says, do you understand things that I've been saying? 
And then he says to them this, he says, every scribe, or let's say apprentice who meditates on the word, every scribe who has been trained in the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. Every scribe of the kingdom of heaven who's been trained in the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out from his treasure those things that are new and those things that are old. Now, what Jesus is saying here is that his apprentices are to be like that person you visit when you go to their house. They just start talking about the things that they delight in. They start telling you stories about this thing over on this wall and this treasure over there on, on that shelf. They tell you about that painting and this portrait. They tell you about those gemstones that they found while they were in Brazil, or, or they tell you about those seashells that they found when they were on Maui, or they tell you about how they inherited that 17th century knick-knack from great, 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 great so-and-so. They just start telling you these things, weaving these stories, and showing you how important they are. They want to highlight what's beautiful to them. They want to share the treasures of their story, share the treasures of their life. And apprentices of Jesus, you could say, trained by their master to walk in the ways of the kingdom are like that. They are those who prayerfully meditate on Scripture. And they delight in its treasures in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. And they are ready to share them, to show them, to speak of their beauty. And John, an apprentice of Jesus, he does this masterfully throughout the whole gospel. He draws them out, he shines light on treasures old and new, and he does this with incredible brilliance in chapters 18 through 20. Now here in these chapters, John is not just showing us some treasures of the New Testament regarding Jesus' arrest, his, his trial, his crucifixion, his death, his resurrection. He's doing something much, much more. John is holding up new and old treasures together, showing us how they are linked, how they are gemstones cut from the same divine jeweler's hand to show us the beauty of who Jesus is. Now, what we see in the story of Jesus allows us to see shimmering through uh, the Old Testament kingdom truths that have always been there, like gemstones that have been unexcavated. He pulls them up and shows how the Old Testament pointed to him all along or consider them like like seeds or maybe some cool combination of a gemstone and a seed that are now blooming in brilliant truth because Jesus has revealed what these things have pointed to all along. Augustine, St. Augustine, described the relationship of the Old Testament and the New Testament in this way. He said, the new is in the old concealed. The old is in the new revealed. It's kind of fun. The new is in the old concealed, the old is in the new revealed. In other words, these two testaments work together. They work in tandem. They reinforce each other and show the deep design. They show the intrinsic intentionality. They show the, the complete coherence of God's plan of salvation. They show how Jesus excavates long buried glorious truths and brings them to fruition brings them up out of the ground to life 
And see, John and Jesus want us to see the world by way of the shape of the whole story, not just in bits and pieces and just some memorized verses, but to understand the whole story. He wants us to have a biblically shaped imagination. Apprentices of Jesus have a biblically shaped imagination, a way of seeing in the world that leads to a way of being in the world. And so it's why we describe the Bible as the God-breathed, humanity-pinned, story-shaped library that leads to Jesus. This is how we describe the Bible around here. The Bible is the God-breathed, that means he inspired it by his word, the humanity penned, he wrote it through individuals with their unique personalities and quirks and and, uh, being formed by where they are in history. And it it is the story-shaped library that leads to Jesus. It's a library of 66 books, different genres that all lead to Jesus. That is the point of the scriptures, to show us the glory of who he is. And so as we enter this new volume of our series on meditations with John, we are going to see now the garden in reverse. The garden in reverse. Now what I mean by that is that John is going to draw out details of Jesus' betrayal, his arrest, his crucifixion, his death, and his resurrection. He's going to draw these out in a way that links up Genesis 1, 2, and 3 with John 18, 19, and 20. So he's going to link these together, Genesis 1, 2, and 3, and John 18 through 20. So there's going to be all these hyperlinks that are moving back and forth between these things. The passion narrative in these chapters of John, by the way, they begin in a garden and they end in a garden, and the cross is right there in the middle. They begin in the Garden of Gethsemane, which we're going to talk about today, and then there's a cross, and then it ends in the garden, or the, the garden tomb, right? So we have garden, garden, and the cross right there in the middle of this garden scenery. And John wants us to read these chapters of John 18 through 20 with the Garden of Eden in mind. Or in other words, we are to look through the lens of Eden as we look upon Jesus' passion. Okay, we are to look through the lens of Eden as we look upon Jesus' passion, his suffering. So uh, what we have before us today in this text is not merely some historical events that happen to take place in the garden. They do take place in a garden and are historical, but what we have here is a recapitulation of the Garden of Eden, a reworking of Eden, a redeeming of the garden. So John is going to link these gardens, Gethsemane and the garden tomb, with the beginning. And by doing so, he's saying, when you think of Jesus and what he's done, you link him back to the very beginning of the story. Because Jesus is doing nothing less than turning the history of the world around. Jesus is doing nothing less than reversing the curse. He's doing nothing less than bringing total renewal to the entire world. So we have multiple gardens, but we have one big story. Now, here's what we're going to do. We're going to do a brief recap of the Eden story to get situated to make sure we can link these things up well. And then what we're going to do is we're going to walk through the landscape of our John text and we're going to feast on some parallels between the Genesis account and and John's telling of Jesus' passion and how Jesus is reversing the curse. And along the way, we're going to see some things that we need to get into our bloodstream, that we need to metabolize and and learn as apprentices of this curse reverser. So shall we take a moment and walk through Eden? Let's walk through Eden together. In the beginning, 
You know, the Gospel of John starts that way in the beginning, but he's not the first one to say that, right? He's riffing off of Genesis 1, in the beginning. This is how the scriptures start. In the beginning, God was. In the beginning, God spoke. In the beginning, God ordered everything with his words. His word ordered all creation. He put things together that ought to be together. He separated things that ought not to be together. He, he put together complementary natures that were spring-loaded for flourishing. Shore and sea, day and night, man and woman. He put these complementary natures together for flourishing so that the world would grow like a garden. God created a land out of the dark waters, God created a land, and in this land called Eden, he placed a garden in the center, and in the center of that garden, he placed trees, and he had a special plan for these trees. Now, God created this garden to be a place of flourishing for his people, people who he would dwell with, people who weren't to be slaves like all the other ancient stories of God's said people were to be. They weren't to be slaves, they were to be family. They were to be friends, they were to walk with him. They would be his people, he would be their God. They would abide together, they would live in his presence, and they would be fruitful, and they would multiply, and they would expand the borders of this garden of delight. Eden is a word that means delight. They would expand the borders of this delight all the way across the globe. And this is what you might call the good life. This is what we're all seeking. This is what we're all chasing after. This is what we're all haunted by, a life of fruitfulness, of peace, and joy, and intimacy, and love. This is the good life. Now, mysteriously, puzzlingly, an enemy creeps into the garden. The serpent is the satanic one, the adversary, the anti-God one who wants to ruin humanity, who wants to hurt humanity, because humanity are the image bearers of God, and the way that he can strike at God is to strike at his children. If you want to strike at me, you strike at my kids. Right? And as a parent, you hurt me when you hurt my kids. And so this clever, shrewd, savvy, serpentine being spins an alternative narrative. He speaks in spin. It's what he does. He offers an opposing voice. He offers a divergent voice to listen to rather than this God who has given humanity everything and blessed them, but just gave them this stipulation. They said, don't touch those trees in the middle. I, I have a reason. Just trust me. But feigning friendship, faking care for Eve and Adam, the serpentine being twists words and bends thoughts and accuses God of holding out on Adam and Eve. It's a war of words. It's a battle raged over trust. I mean, come on. Did God really say, come on, you know what he's doing. He's got everything. He's holding back on you. Can you really, can you really trust his words? He's keeping it from you. Get it. Grab it. Take it for yourself. You can be like him. Don't let him define good and evil. You do it. Well, you know how the story goes. Eve eats the fruit, and Adam is near, but somehow invisible at this point in the story. He's there somewhere abdicating his responsibility to nourish and to protect the garden, to tend and to keep, to cultivate and guard it. 
which is priestly work. He's not doing it. And this act of trusting another voice other than God's is just devastating. The cosmos fractures. The universe cracks. There's a rupture now between creation and creator, between mankind and between God, and shame and guilt flood the scene and flood the human soul. There's a fourfold fracture, so to speak. There's a disunion now between humanity and God, between humanity and humanity, between humanity and creation and humanity within themselves. We disintegrate because we are disconnected from God, others, and the creation in which we are rooted. Fourfold fracture. And so, what does God do? Well, He comes to His people, He runs to His people, He walks in the garden with His people, He comes graciously, He comes with questions Where are you? He's seeking relationship. What have you done? But Adam, he blame shifts, he accuses, and this creates a brokenness now between him and the woman. There's brokenness and bentness in our relationships with each other now. So what to do? <laughs> what to do? Well, God addresses the situation. Cursing the serpent and letting the people know what is coming down the road because they trusted a lie rather than trusting Truth. And then blood is shed. God kills an animal and covers Adam and Eve in new clothes. They were feeling naked and ashamed, alienated and isolated and exposed. And then Adam and Eve are exiled. They are removed from the garden, exit stage right from this garden of delight and go east. And at that gate to the east, at that gate of the garden, God puts angels to stand sentinel with fiery swords to block the way. Adam and Eve are not to get back in. Not by means of their own, not by force, not by trying hard, not by performance. Anyone who is going to go in has to undergo the fiery sword. The way is blocked. They shall not pass. Three Lord of the Rings fans are happy about that one. And from here, the story spirals into darker and more broken bits. From that exit stage right, from that exile from the garden there, exiled from that tree of life in the middle, the story now leans forward with an ache. And all of us lean forward with an ache, a yearning, a haunting for some kind of healing, for some kind of renewal, that, for what was tragically lost, to get back into the center, to get back to the tree of life, to get back to the place of flourishing, to get back to the place of intimacy, to get back to the place of dwelling with God, all the world aches and cries out for a reversal. Reversal. This traumatic event in the garden has brought a curse to this world. A great shadow of sin has crept across everything and through everything. This ancient shadow animates our political corruption. It animates the pornography industry. It animates our systems of greed. It animates sex trafficking and unjust laws and cycles of poverty and war machines. And this world needs healing. It needs a great reversal. And it is with a vision in our minds of this bright garden gone dark that John wants us to see this Jesus in his garden. Okay. Are we ready now to walk into Gethsemane, from Eden, 
to Gethsemane. That was kind of like the previously on, on, like every show we watch. That was the previously on. Here we go into this week's episode. Verse 1, John 18, verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Let's break this down. When Jesus had spoken these words, Jesus has been praying. He's been teaching. So this is referring to the high priestly prayer we've just been spending the last month in. So after that, they leave Jerusalem. They went down into the valley of Kidron, east. So you're going east of Jerusalem. There's some friends. We, we walked this in Kidron Valley, right? We, we went down into this valley. So you go east of Jerusalem, and there's a valley. It just drops, and then it comes up on the other side, and you go down about 200 feet, and you come up on the other side. This is the Mount of Olives, and on the side of the Mount of Olives, there is a garden. And so they are going down into this dark valley at night. Now, Kidron is a Hebrew word which actually means darkness. Darkness. So Jesus literally goes across the brook of darkness. Jesus goes across the dark waters to a garden. I mean, Genesis 1 and 2 are already popping out here in John's brilliant nuance. We are one sentence in, and John is overlaying the gardens, the dark waters of Genesis, and then God creates a garden so he can be with his people. Jesus is going across these dark waters in the dead of night to go into a garden to be with his people. And this garden is called Gethsemane. And Gethsemane means olive press or uh, olive, olive crusher. This is where the fruit is, so to speak, tasted. The fruit is, is crushed to flow out. Now, that's just a start. Verse 2 through 3. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place. For Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. So Judas now creeps in among the trees. And now we have the snake in the garden, don't we? And that's not just me trying to find some meaning here. John 13 verse 27 tells us outright that Satan entered Judas. And the Satan entered Judas now enters into the garden where God would walk with his people. In Genesis, God walked with them in the cool of the day. It was this known spot where they walked. And here Judas knows where God walks with his people. So he's going to go and meet them. He's brought an army with him, literally. John uses the word cohort. It's a cohort of Roman soldiers. And with this cohort of Roman soldiers are temple police and representatives from the Jewish, Jewish religious parties. That's important. Do you know why? Because it says Gentiles and Jews are out to get Jesus together. Gentiles and Jews. That means all the world is there to crucify him. And that means we are there represented in the cohort as well. We are all out to get this God. Now Judas, like the snake in Eden, he comes with fake care. He comes with fake affection. The snake masqueraded as an advocate for Adam and Eve, his mouth sweet with poison. Ah, oh, take it, it's yours. Take it. I want to see you rise to your potential. You could be so much more. He's holding you back. And Judas, he comes with the sweetness of a kiss. 
marking Jesus out for death by a sign of affection with his lips. And Satan, once an angel who betrayed his creator, now Judas, once an apprentice, whose very name means praise him, has betrayed his master. Now, there's another detail that John indicates or includes to key us into the, the Eden imagery here. And it's this simple line, with lanterns and torches and weapons. Why do we have this? With lanterns, torches, and weapons. Well, on the surface, it's because we have a hunting party. We have a militia. We have politicians. We have the religious elite. They are expecting something of a fight. They are expecting a hunt. And we have this imagery of flashing swords and fire. Flashing swords and fire. Flashing swords and fire in a garden of betrayal. There it is right under our nose. Ready for us to smell, to see, to sense what John is doing here. So let me read a portion of Genesis 3, verse 24. Genesis 3, 24. He and his God drove out the man, that's man and woman, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim, that's a Hebrew word that's plural for angels, placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Fire, swords, a garden of betrayal, man against God. Now once again, sin has brought fiery swords to the garden where there should be fellowship. But the glorious hope here is that Jesus will reverse the no access to God's presence in Eden. How? How will he reverse this no access? By undergoing the fiery sword himself. The violence of men, he must undergo it. He must go to the cross. He must die, and he will. He will die for humanity's sin, and he will open the way to paradise. He tells the thief who's next to him, today you will be with me in delight, in paradise, in the garden You will be with me. Why? Because Jesus is dying on that cross, undergoing the sword. That that fiery sword is sheathed in his body, and the way is opened. Now, this leads to uh, another facet of Eden being played out in reverse. This takes place on Passover night. This event takes place on Passover night. Passover night, what's in the sky? Always on a Passover night. The moon, a full moon, a full moon, which means it was a well-lit night, most likely. So why the torches, flashlights, and floodlights? Well, because the hunting posse, again, they thought they would be after someone who was on the run, someone who was hiding, and they thought they had a manhunt on their hands. They have to go searching for Jesus as though he were, I don't know, maybe hiding behind the trees. But not Jesus. He's not like anyone else. This Jesus is not like anyone else. He's not hiding among the trees. Listen to what he says. Listen to what happens. Verses 4 through 9. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, he came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. 
Judas, who betrayed him, John wants to make sure we know he betrayed him, says in here twice, was standing with them. And when Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and they fell to the ground. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken of those whom you gave me, Father, I have lost not one. So, when the posse arrives, Jesus steps forward to meet them. No shrinking back, no peeking out from a fig tree. Like, are they gone yet? He steps out and he steps up and he asks, whom do you seek? It's God in the garden asking questions again of those who have betrayed their creator. And they say, Jesus of Nazareth, and he says, I am he, here I am. I will take responsibility. Help me out here. Who does Jesus not sound like at this point? Adam. The second Adam is not like the first Adam. When the snake comes into the garden, Adam is there, but he's passive. He's to the side. He's not keeping and guarding, and guarding the garden that he was called to keep and to guard and to protect. And so the snake sinks his fangs into Eve while Adam watches on in a terrible passivity. He abdicated his role. Jesus, though, he steps up. He steps in. He steps forward. He addresses the enemy. John is saying, behold, the true husband and the true bride, his church. Behold, the true gardener and his garden, the world, a garden for his glory. Now, I could pause here um, and lean into this. I don't have the time, but I think this should preach to you men, you husbands. Not to enter into this life of passivity, but to love and to lead well. Verse 8, this, this is so astounding. <laughs> I told you that I'm he, so if you seek me, let these men go. Jesus has just made sure the bullseye is 100% on his chest, right? He's protecting his apprentices. If you want me, deal with me. It's not with them, it's with me. And again, who does this not sound like? Adam. This is the garden in reverse. See, in Eden, when God came and sought humanity out in the garden, Adam hid. He shrunk back. He wimped out. And when God graciously asked Adam, what did you do? What happened? What does Adam do? He's like, her fault. <laughs> her fault. Oh, and by the way, your fault, you gave her to me. It's gross. It is just greasy, isn't it? You just want to thump the dude on the head. Like, dude, you just blamed your wife while you were there doing nothing, and you blame God who gave you everything. It makes zero sense. It's gross. It's called blame shifting. It's what sin causes us to do. It's what is born into our hearts. It's what our toddlers do day in and day out. It's her fault. She hit me first. It's like, oh my gosh, you're doing it. There's a garden all over again in my playroom. 
And then I yell at him, and my wife's like, what's going on with you? I'm like, they started it! Anyway. He doesn't take responsibility. He tries to justify himself by sacrificing somebody else. Jesus. He takes responsibility and will sacrifice him self for those who are not innocent. Because Jesus, he's good. He's worth your attention. He's worth your affection. Again, John is saying, behold, the curse reverser. The one who can reverse this blame shifting in your marriages. This one who can reverse the sin that's in your children's heart. This one that can reverse the the, the enmity that's between countries. This is your fault. It's your fault. He can reverse these things. 1 Corinthians 15.45 calls Jesus the last Adam. This is Adam recapitulated but done right. This is the true human being. This is the one that we are being formed into to become truly human. Now John also wants us to see that the second Adam in this second garden of betrayal is not just some mere man. Jesus asks, whom do you seek? They say, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus says, what? Help me out here. What is Jesus' response? Whom do you seek? I am he. Actually, no, that's wrong. The Greek text just says I am. Ego me. We, we add the he in there to help us out, but it actually hinders what's going on. It says I am. I am. M and this hunting posse, this mob of men made up by some of the most burly, scarred war machine of men from a Roman cohort, they fall back and they hit the ground like toddlers, in verse 6. In this moment, light shines, blares through the darkness. It's just this quick, this quick little peek into the divinity of Jesus, and it bowls over these battle-hardened fighters down like plastic bowling pins. So good. That's our Jesus. He's not like, oh, I guess I have to go do this. He's in control of this whole thing. And he shows restraint. And and another gospel says he could call down 70,000 angels to defend himself. I am he. I am he. I am. These are the words God speaks to Moses on Sinai when he reveals himself to Moses. I am Yahweh, I am that I am. Jesus is God in the garden. Jesus is God confronting the snake amongst the trees. And Jesus needs no sword. Roman legions fall at his mere breath. But Jesus needs no sword, yet Peter swings for the fences anyway. (laughs) Jesus swings one. Or Peter swings a sword. He starts swinging a sword. Look at this, verse 10 through 11. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, he drew it, he struck the high priest's servant, and cut off his right ear. <laughs> the servant's name was Malchus. We got Malchus in the middle there. Anyway, sorry. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? What a scene this is. <laughs> it's Peter, just totally being Peter. So understand the dynamics of this, though. Peter has just witnessed Jesus' power. His breath has bowled down the enemy. Peter is clearly on the winning side. Understand the sociology that's happening here. These killing machines of Rome, they're cowering. Peter sees this. 
Glowing in confidence, it seems, Peter does a very Peter-like thing. He is all ready, fire, and aim. Versus ready, aim, fire, and he swings. He aims at the servant, kind of. The representative and leader of this hunting party. No warning shot. He's going for the head. This is a kill shot. (laughs) He lunges, sword flashes, Malchus loses an ear. And we can tell this is an eyewitness account because John's like, oh, by the way, it was the right ear. And here we see the kind of thing that King Jesus does. He doesn't capitalize on violence and say, well, I didn't do it, but let's lean into it. It's good for our cause. I'm glad somebody else did the dirty work. He doesn't ask us to do his dirty work for him. He doesn't use our brokenness in in a way that reinforces that brokenness, but a way that redeems it. He doesn't validate the wrong by doing nothing. No, he says, this is not the way. He picks up the severed ear, and he puts Malchus back together again. And one can only imagine this shocked Malchus at this point, right? Thinking, wow, what what, what just happened? His world is is ringing, right? His, His body is screaming with pain, and then healing, Healing, Jesus is reversing the curse. He will not let Peter kill his brother. He will not let this go down in a shootout. He will not let blood be spilt on the soil. Jesus will stop the Cain and Abel cycle of violence by taking the violence upon himself and letting his blood heal this world. He is reversing the curse of brother against brother that is ripping this world apart. It's only in Jesus that this cycle of violence will stop. It's only in forgiveness and loving your enemy that this cycle of violence will stop. Goodness, my time is running short. i got to move along. This is exactly what, why he says what he does here in verse 11. Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? What does Jesus mean by this? What cup has the Father given Jesus? Well, the scriptures over and over and over again speak of a coming judgment of God and the image, the metaphor is of a cup of wine and is God's judgment against injustice and idolatry, against breaking reality and breaking each other. It's an image of a cup of wine. In Psalm 75, 8, it says this, For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine well mixed. He pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs, to the sediment at the bottom. They'll drink it in. In other words, Jesus tells Peter, Am I not here to bring salvation? And am I not here to, to do it by bringing it upon myself and taking in the judgment? And this imagery... Think about it. It's wine. What is wine made of? It is fruit. Do you see this? Where Adam and Eve failed by taking the fruit that looked of life but brought death. Jesus will be faithful by drinking the cup of death that will bring us life. The curse and its reverse are seen here as being connected to the fruit of the garden. Now, Adam and Eve ushered in death. Jesus opens the way to life. How does he do this? Verse 12 gives us a hint of what's about to happen. So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and they bound him. John uses this word, bound, because this is a temple word. This is what they would do to the lambs. They would take the lambs that were perfect, no flaw in them, and they would bind their their legs together and they would take them and they would slaughter them Bound. This is temple imagery. This is Jesus being the lamb who is prepared, being prepared 
for sacrifice. John knows that Jesus is the lamb slain, the one that takes away the sins of the world. And he wants us to see that God's response to Adam and Eve was to kill an animal to cover them in their sin and shame. And that was a foreshadow, that was a taste of Christ who would be slain to cover our exposed selves. His blood would be shed to cover us with his robes of righteousness. Jesus reverses the curse of our guilt and our shame, covering us with his righteousness. Now, I, guys, I got to get to the application. I got to get to the application. All this literary brilliance isn't just for us to go, well, that's cool. Wow. Like, this is actually meant to be light, to, to light up our dark hearts and to reshape our minds so that we see this world as Jesus wants us to re-see this world. It is all that we might see Jesus as the great curse reverser. And so we should ask again the question Jesus asked. I want to ask it to you. Whom do you seek? Whom do you seek? All of us are coping with brokenness and are haunted by what we could be or should be. We are all born seekers. Every one of us straining after Leaning towards, reaching for something or someone that is written deep into the architecture of our hearts. We are all seekers. But whom do you seek? Whom do you seek when you chase after beauty? Whom do you seek when you grab after power? Whom do you seek when you chase after influence and significance? Whom do you seek when you feel compelled to go out into nature to taste of something more transcendent and greater? Whom do you seek when you swipe right on Tinder? Whom do you seek when you need another glass of wine, when you need another shot of whiskey just to put the day to rest? Because if you don't have it, you're not going to have peace, so you need it. Whom do you seek at the bottom of it? Whom do you seek when you forsake your family on the altar of that fast-paced career in the Bay Area? Whom do you seek when you cover your shame with, with fast and high fashion? And whom do you seek when you post your filtered highlight reels? And whom are you seeking when you are scrolling and scrolling, dopamining for that moment of feel good because there's another like or hit that says that you're there and you exist and somebody saw you? Who do you seek when you need the highest grade, when your life suddenly loses meaning if Ivy schools aren't happening? Whom do you seek with the need to binge watch another show just to Cope. Whom do you seek when your, your kids' sports schedules and all the aspirations trump spiritual formation and being involved in a community of people that will be with them for eternity? Whom are you seeking? Whom do you seek on this quest for meaning that you are on? Every one of us needs to be saved from ourselves and the evil in this world that we experience and participate in. And the good news is that what broke the world in a garden would be reversed when God came to another garden to bring life up from the ground. Galatians 3, 13 through 14 proclaims this truth. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham, that we become God's kids, the blessings of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith, reunion with God to walk with him in the good life. Whatever it is you're facing, 
Whatever guilt, shame, fear, or pain, there is one at work who is reversing the curse. Take heart, dear one. Even now he is at work reversing the curse. Whom do you seek? Seek Jesus, the God of the garden. Father, you are good. You are, you are great. And I know I love so many gospel gems unexcavated from that text. Lord, would you inspire us to lean in, to study, to meditate on the truths of who you are and what you have done. Father, would you take these many words and would you speak one powerful, life-changing word in the hearts of us today? We love you. We need you. We worship you. Amen.